0: I'm Dr. Lisa Radasta, and you're tuned into the Backyard Pet Talk with Shannon Riley Podcast.
1: Welcome, welcome. It's so happy to have you here today. I have been looking forward to this podcast for quite a while with our busy schedules trying to get you booked and so where we both were free. I'm really looking forward to I have seen you in conferences and you know met you here and there. But since we are on opposite sides of the continent, don't get to see each other very often. So I'm really happy you're here. Thank you for joining us at our podcast. You know, I really just want to educate everybody about being kind and to their animals and giving them good welfare and good care, good training. So thank you very much for being here with us today. Before we start, just so people know, like, who is this person? If they don't (laughs) follow you on Facebook or Instagram (laughs) or any of those other places, um, you know, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you became a behaviorist.
0: Well, so I'm a working mom. I'm a fitness Looney Tunes Person, you know, eating and working out, and I happen to be a board certified veterinary behaviorist as well. And I got boarded in two thousand six. And if people don't know, you know, people might not know how you get to be a a board certified vet behaviorist. So just in brief, you do your undergrad business, you get into vet school, you finish vet school, you do an internship, you do a year of work working in a hospital under the mentorship of, of other doctors, and then you do a residency. Mine was three. Years. Sometimes people do five years, but I was at Penn, so it was three. And then you publish a research project and you go through all the hoops and you pass the two-day board exam and then, ah, here we are. So I'm basically a veterinary psychiatrist.
1: That's how I like to explain it. When people, you know, I say, you know, I do kind of therapy work, like whatever, underneath to help with the hands on but that's what I say is you're like the psychiatrist you know you've gone through all this schooling so that's a great way of being able to explain it what made you I mean you were probably like all of us who get into this field an avid animal lover but was there anything specifically that got you to go from just being a veterinarian to being a behaviorist?
0: Yeah. So when I was 18, I, well, when I was a little girl, do you remember that English trainer who used to do walkies? You may not be old enough. She had white hair and she used to say walkies and she'd walk with her dogs and she had a TV show. I was like oh. 10 uh-huh. and I bought her book and I watched her and I tried to cha- train my black lab. So training was just something that I loved, right? Right. And that morphed into adulthood. I get my first Rottweiler. I decided to show her an obedience. That was when agility was not a thing, right? It wasn't yes. even a thing. You couldn't yes. even do it. Yes. And so I fell in love with the precision of mm-hmm. obedience and the way that you had to work together. And I've been very open on social media about, I did a lot of the bad things. Like that. it did the pinch collar. I did oh, a lot sure. of the things. So um, it was that OG training. And so then I get my, I, I go into veterinary school. I still love behavior. So I go in knowing I don't want to be a general practitioner. It's not for me. Um, So it's either dermatology, neurology, behavior. I do not like surgery. So neurology is a lot of cuttings. I'm not doing that. So then it was dermatology or behavior. And the truth is that what I lived every day, because I had now my second Rottweiler that I was showing in obedience, right? And I lived it. I loved it. I couldn't tire of it. So it had to be behavior. Like there was no other way. And people ask me one of the favorite, favorite questions of everybody who interviews me is what would you be if you weren't a bad behaviorist? And I'm like, I don't know. I don't know. Like the last time I answered, I'm like, I am living the dream. This yeah. is the thing. And I guess if I was in a fantasy land, I'd be a professional athlete, but that is pure on fantasy <laughs> where there's like unicorns around like, that. I'm, but um, yeah, I just love it. And if you can get that opportunity to do what you love, you should probably take it.
1: I totally agree. And I know I've been very open to that. You know, when I was 16, I was trained, I was doing a lab, but I was doing the same thing. There was no agility. It was formal obedience. And I never competed because I wasn't interested in the competition aspect, but I trained to that level, but it was choke chains, pinch collars, all those things. And um, I hated it even, you know, as a teenager, I hated it, but there was no other, I didn't know there was options. And I totally agree. I think about that sometimes, like, if I could do anything else, you know, I'm a licensed vet tech. I don't practice right now. So I do miss sometimes a little bit of medicine, but I, because I see the patients that either come from a behaviorist or are on the edge, maybe don't need it. Cause their general vet is good enough. You know, it's not extreme enough. So I'm kind of in that therapy. So I get to do work with fearful dogs every day, but I also teach agility and I play with puppies and teach socialization. So for me, like, there's not a lot of other things I would want to do either, and it is a great yeah. place to be for sure. So um, it is,
0: and I I pull from that. You know, yesterday I sat in the exam room with uh, another doodle boy. I see a doodle every day for aggression, whoosh. at least one doodle every day, and this was a really big one. He was so cute, and his dad came. So he, his dad came with him, and he brought. I, I always ask him, please send videos. So that's mm-hmm. my X-ray. I got you yeah. know, I got to be able to read the X-ray. So there were nine videos, so we went through them. And so it looked like there was this black thing on his neck. And I said, what is that in the video? And he moves his stuff, the pet parent uh-huh. moves the stuff and says, it's the shot collar," Cause I could see there was a box and I yeah. couldn't see what it was up in the video. And I said, oh, okay. And I said, all right, well, look, here's the thing. So I explained how part of why the dog is so aggressive it's because he's been shocked every time he sees another dog. So for you sure. know, I explain all the science behind it. But my point, I guess, now, based on what we were just talking about is I was able to have empathy for him because mm-hmm. I have done, I have not ever used a shock collar on an animal, but I have used a pinch collar mm-hmm. when I was 18 and the, the trainer I was working with was top level obedience. And I did what she said. Yeah. And I don't even think she's a bad person. I think yeah. she didn't know. And right. I didn't know. So that allowed me to come at him with empathy instead of judgment and say, look, man, if you follow me on social media, you know, I did some stuff I'm not proud of when I first started training dogs. So you did the stuff. It caused a problem. You can either throw it away here or you can throw it away in the outside garbage in your house. So you're not ever tempted to go and get it right. So no inside garbage and we're done with it. It's water under the bridge. But I don't know. And I think I wish I had been the person who had never, who knew enough at eighteen to say that hurts a dog. But on the other hand, that experience allows me to be very non-judgmental and to say, you know what, that was stupid, and whatever, we're moving on,
1: right? One hundred percent. I yeah. I have those same conversations. You know, I even in my book that I wrote, like I have the full, the beginning, and I say. You know, I trained Missy with a pinch. uh, We did a choke because pinch she was so sensitive to. I did stop with her, but I used a pinch on other dogs. I mean, it wasn't like I'd never used it. Didn't use shock either, but was offered shock to use shock, but I never did that. Citronella collars, though, I had used because I thought that was a more gentle thing when we didn't know what that that we were actually making fear worse or problems worse. So I agree. I think that um, coming at people with empathy and not judgment and that they're going to be more open because if they follow you or me, you know, we're fear-free, we don't use those things. But if they're coming to me, I look at it as an opening to educate somebody and say, look, we didn't know what we know now is we know better. Don't beat yourself up for what you didn't know. And you were following right. an expert at that time that you thought was an expert. So, you know, okay, so let's just change the scenario a little bit. Crazy things for people to do. And that's where one of the things that comes into now is those people not all of them, because I don't ever like to lump everybody. But a lot of the people I see that are coming from that, they say, well, the only way I can control my dog is with this, you know, whatever aversive that they're using. So that's though, those are the dogs that most of the time I'm like, okay, there's something bigger going on here. If you can't train it normally with a harness and treats or toys, what else is going on here? And that's where I start to see like, there's the anxiety part or the fear part or the stress part. And so recently, this has been happening a lot. I get people that have been coming from more um, traditional trainers and nothing, quote unquote, nothing's working. And then I see the dog just for like an hour, you know, in my yard or something. And I'm going, the dog has like pretty extreme anxiety or fear or stress or blah, blah, blah. Then we start talking a little bit about medications. And sometimes I think that's where people, they're trying so hard because they just want a good dog. And maybe the pinch or the choke at the moment works in the moment as far as they're concerned but they have no idea what's happening on the inside of their animal and so they get locked onto it so i sometimes i'm trying to find them going okay we need to talk to your vet or we need to go get you to a behaviorist about dealing with what's going on on the inside because just like humans if we have a lot of anxiety and stress and fear it's almost impossible for us to function fully normally on the outside, you know? And so we do things that are maybe not good choices. And so I know as behaviorists, you see a lot of these that are coming. And so how would you say, you know, if we get somebody off the choke pinch, which, you know, is what we're working on, but they are too out of control or, you know, for these pet people to handle without these harsh things. What is the next step? How do you talk to them about like, well, maybe this is an internal stress situation or fear, or it's a learned stress because they've had the pinch collar on for so long. Um, How do you kind of transition to that and talk to them a little bit about medication?
0: Yeah. So um, just to frame this a little differently, when someone says nothing's working and I had to use X, Y, Z, we often work through all the factors that could have brought them to that conclusion. So in other words, it's not working. Well, maybe you didn't have a trainer with the skill to work with your dog because everyone's at a different level. I don't do surgery. Don't ask me to do it. I I won't even, even attempt it. Right. Uh So that doesn't mean I'm less than, it just means I have a different skill set. Right. So some trainers are great at obedience. Some could train agility. Some understand how we, how cognitive therapies work to help animals to have a different emotional valence. all right so maybe you're with the wrong trainer maybe you didn't have the time to train your dog maybe everyone in your house is working against you because i don't care if you have the best trainer of all time if you're the only one doing it and everyone else is doing something different (laughs) your poor little dog doesn't know what to do right so first we go through i know that you feel i acknowledge and justify that you feel this way and let's talk about the facts of how we ended up here, right? And when do we need medicine? We need medicine when the welfare of the patient is affected. And the problem is that we do have like, um, you know, the five freedoms that we use as an animal welfare guide. But the problem that we have with that is one of the five freedoms is freedom from anxiety and fear. But then the reason that's a problem, because I use the five freedoms all the time mm-hmm. in the clinic talking to clients, that it's a problem because it's subjective right? So, well, okay, is he fearful? So then we have to show tail down, ears back, panting. We show the physiologic fear, increased heart rate. Okay, we got it. We agree that the pet's fearful, me and the pet parent. But then the pet parent says, "But it's just a walk. How much does that affect his life? So then, you know, you have to come together with what I would perceive as poor quality of life versus, sometimes versus, Sometimes we're in agreement immediately, what the pet parent feels is a poor quality of life. Mm -hmm. Then you find a space for what can we do? Because the way we treat treatment, uh, the way we treat behavior disorders, evaluation of health and wellness, because Mm -hmm. sometimes the medications I give out are pain meds, forget pros, right? right? Yes, for sure. I give out probiotics. Sometimes Mm -hmm. I give out uh, a diet change, right? So, okay. So health and wellness, number one, management. So that's distraction Mm -hmm. and avoidance. Behavior modification, cognitive therapies, and medications, right? So I will say to people, well, here's the thing. Your dog is afraid to go outside and walk, but he's not afraid in your yard. Here's the options. Option one, don't walk your dog. (laughs) I gotta tell you, that is the option I would take. My dog would just be in my backyard. Like, why am I fighting this? But okay, it's up to you. If you want to walk your dog, like besides putting him in the car to get him to the vet, if you want to walk him you are going to need a medication because mm-hmm. your dog is so scared. As soon as he walks to the door, he's doing this scanning business, hypervigilant, panting on a cool day when he shouldn't be panting. So here's the thing is people say, well, I just want to get him listened to me. And I say, okay, right, yeah. But the problem is what you have to do to get him to listen to you is you have to change the emotional valence. Yes. Okay, right? So uh, you have to change from, let's just say, a peak that goes upward to a peak that goes downward. When I say valence, think of opposite. change into the opposite swing or tempo. So if I start with a calm dog, which medication should give me, if it's it's the right dose, Mm -hmm. administered correctly, yada, yada, et cetera, et cetera. If I have all that right as the doctor, then I start with a calm dog. Then I can help the dog to believe that she's safe outside. But if I start with a dog who's upset, that is a neurochemical response. And all those neurochemicals are bond, bound to those little receptors and the heart's beating faster and the dog's breathing faster. And now I have to first eliminate all those neurochemicals. Mm-hmm. They got to pop off the receptors. Your dog's got to go to baseline before I can help your dog to understand they're safe. And that is very hard. So that is just one example. Sometimes. I look at a pet and I say, my God, can you imagine? I literally, anyone that knows me knows this is exactly how I talk in the examiner. I just say, I, oh my God, I put my hand to my head. Like I could not live the way your dog's living. Mm-hmm. I say to them, can you imagine mm-hmm. if you were so scared of sounds that you wouldn't even go outside? Mm-hmm. And then the pet parents were like, what? I'm like, that's why you're here, man. That's why you're sitting in my exam room. Can you imagine living that life? None of us want that life, especially after COVID. We know what it's like to be isolated. We know what it's like to feel disconnection. So, but with all that said, I got to tell you, my approach in the exam rooms to lay out the options like I did with the dog who's afraid, just an example with the dog who's afraid to, to walk outside. Pet parents have to feel comfortable. And there's a study that shows that people who are uncomfortable with medicine for their pet are less likely to take that recommendation from the doctor. Mm-hmm. These are psychiatric meds, <laughs> in particular, and that people who have been on and had positive experiences with psychiatric meds themselves or in their family are more likely to want those and accept those. So we all come with a bias. So people yes. need choices, you know, they yeah. need choices.
1: I agree. And I have had that conversation with people who, you know, the dog's afraid of walks and Um, I can, I can think of a couple people where I'm like, well, okay, you have a great backyard. You can play in the backyard. You don't need to go on walks. And they go, what? And I said, there is no rule book saying dogs have to go on a walk. If they hate that walk, you know, you're just adding stress every single day. And I do it very similar. I say, gosh, you know, imagine this or this, and I try to put it in the human perspective because it does definitely make them understand <clears throat> that we're not trying to drug their dog, or they're not. It's not the intention. You know, if I send them to a behaviorist or a veterinarian, it's not the intention that I want to sedate their dog at all. I want their dog to feel good inside, so that they are at a capable place of learning. You know, and and going forward. And I think the other things are all important that you talked about, too. Pain medication. People don't realize, and I think there's a new study showing that like up to 80% of behavior cases come in, and they're actually pain that's causing. Uh, thing. I yeah, so think 82% slide. have that's I either
0: yeah. systemic illness, systemic illness or pain. so about 23% have um, systemic, systemic illness. And I want to say 50 some percent have pain. This was a six uh, center, a multi-center study with that behaviorist. In my practice, I would say it's 50% plus, but that's a guesstimate. I haven't gone back to my cases. I would say it's more common than not that I find something. I would say more common than not. And the thing, You know, I think that we also need to just um, let people know right now, let's answer their questions about meds. Okay, here we go. Number one, the medicine will not make your pet a zombie if it's prescribed correctly, Mm -hmm. correct dose, and you dose it correctly, if your dog happens to be sedated because the side effects, blanket statement, side effects of psych drugs, potential, potential, right? Sedation, agitation changes in appetite. The cool thing about psych drugs is if you see that, you discontinue the medicine and it goes away. Mm-hmm. These medicines that we use, these are not like chemotherapy drugs. Like, these are not harmful drugs. They are broken down the liver usually. Sometimes they're broken down the kidney. So your kidney and liver has to work, but these drugs don't damage. I put dogs and cats that are four months old on antidepressants on alpha two agonists on benzodiazepines. And I have the glorious, you know, just gift of being able to follow them out to their end of life till they cross the rainbow bridge at 13, 14, 15. Believe me, we're not taking them off the drugs for any reason, especially because they caused organ damage. People are very concerned that their pets are going to be zombies. And what I tell them is half the people in your neighborhood. Or on-site drugs. <laughs> exactly. So unless you're like living in zombie <coughs> land, yeah. you know, it doesn't have to cause your pet to be a zombie. So what is the goal? The goal is to put a ceiling on the intensity of the behavior to change the level to which your dog or cat or bunny, or I've treated clouded leopards, horses, but the whole thing a, a lid on the intensity of that stress mm-hmm. and who in the world raise your hand. If you want to feel out of control and stress, no one wants that. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that everyone's pet needs to be on meds. I want to right. be real clear. And I don't think, and I tell my clients, if you're not comfortable, do not take these meds home. I do not turn into a pumpkin. When I walk out of the store, I'll mm-hmm. prescribe another recheck. If that's what yep. you want, do not take something home that you don't want. And also, Consider if you were walking in your dog or cat or bunnies' footsteps, would you want to live that life? Because if you don't, and you would self-medicate even with a martini at the end right. of the day, mm-hmm. if you would self-medicate with a cup of coffee at the beginning of the day, doesn't your pet deserve the minimum you'd give, you would give yourself, Right. right.
1: Yeah. And yeah. I love that you have touched on the safety of them. You know, I mean, obviously all medications you got, you monitor things, but that's a big thing of, Oh, I can't put them on, you know, because they're too young. And, and I have been doing puppy socialization classes since the nineties. So I've seen it and, you know, it used to be any, you know, Oh, you have to wait till at least a year before you even consider the medication. And I literally would watch puppies at eight weeks old that I knew this dog is going to struggle their entire life because they're just an anxious little puppy. And we do everything we can expose, you know, socialize positive experiences. And that pup, that dog then still ends up being an anxious, fearful dog. And now almost 30 years later, you know, they're like starting to, you know, people are more comfortable treating puppies and younger dogs. And what's beautiful about that is they're in my puppy class and then some of them end up doing privates and we follow through or they are my agility or something and I get to watch and then one time I have this one dog that fought for two years medication went to all some aversive trainers was in my puppy class but then was doing privates with every Tom Duke and Harry she could find finally came back to me and it did a private And my first question was the reason this is not working is your dog is nervous which I've told you that since she was eight weeks old in puppy class Finally tried to put her on the Prozac and this dog within two weeks, which is not common. You know, I saw significant difference and she also joined an agility class where she was barking at all the dogs and then she came and wasn't barking at everybody. And the class said, what is different about that dog? She was so different. They noticed, and we hadn't done a lot of behavior mod for agility per se, because we were working on the other stuff and just being calmer. She could enjoy everything. And it was interesting because the whole class noticed and she wasn't embarrassed at this point to say, I finally put her on medication. And it was almost like a commercial for what you could do to help this animal who was going the wrong direction. And then some of those animals end up being euthanized for behavior that if they had been caught early and managed somewhat younger and learned, learned life different. They wouldn't have to have that in their adult. So I love that now behaviorists like yourself are saying, hey, they don't. we don't have to wait till they're a certain age. If we see this now, what can we do to help them now? And as somebody who was an anxious child, like if somebody had been able to address that to me when I was young and like taught me skills, but also medicated me if I needed to. My college years would have been a lot easier. (laughs) You know, I like would have been able to not be always anxious, you know? And so um, I really appreciate that when we start talking more about the safety, because the people who don't know, that's a big thing. The liver, the, you know, oh, they're going to, you know, shorten their lifespan. And if I really get into that, I said, well, even if it did, let's just play devil's advocate. If my lab lives to be 14 years old, but not stressed, Maybe he could have lived to be 16, but, um, but he would have been stressed the whole time, probably wouldn't have even lived till 16 because the stress would have got him, you know, earlier. So we're not looking at like, you know, we're shortening their life by half in some ways. I think it can increase their lifespan because I don't think people recognize how much stress and anxiety and fear actually is such a toxic thing to our systems and animal systems. So I think, you know, when people do those things and I great that you look at all places because I have had dogs that I see that have gone to different trainers and I see them and as being a vet tech, I'll say, we aren't doing anything until you get those hip sex right. You know, we're not doing anything until those shoulders are examined and, and then they come back and they were, they had dysplasia or they had some, something else, no matter what I did behaviorally training, it was never going to change because I wasn't gonna be able to change that pain. That holistic approach is so important.
0: It really is. And and also, you know, I think back to giving people choices. I have I have a fair number of clients who are high-level competitors with their Mm -hmm. dogs, whether it be barn hunt, fast cat, confirmation, agility, obedience, you name it. I have clients who are doing it. And so I remember a client was in my room, and frankly, They were a great trainer. Like I could tell they were hot. They could, just from the titles their their other dogs had, I was like, okay, you can train an animal, no doubt. And so I laid out all the options and they said to me, are you telling me that if I do not show this dog, I don't need medicine? And I said, yeah. Mm -hmm. I said, this showing and and having been a person who loved to get titles on her dog, who got a puppy, knowing the titles that puppy was going to get, I get where they were coming from. They were had her, this dog's life planned out right already. Yeah. Right. And they saw the potential in yeah. the dog to win all these titles. And so I said, yeah, let's talk for a second. Running in this particular sport, which I won't name because mm-hmm. you know, I want to stay anonymous for this totally. person. Totally. Running in this particular sport is your want. It is not your dog's need. Your dog's need is to stay safe. Mm -hmm. Your dog feels safe in your home environment. If you want your dog to fulfill your want, I have to medicate him. Mm -hmm. That's how it goes, right? And and if you will settle for a pet and fulfilling his needs for wellness and health and longevity and joy and a happy life, bye-bye. You don't need any medicine. I'm not even sure you need meat, right? So if people, but then I had another client many years ago and she said to me, she sort of became a friend. I knew her dog for 13 years, ever since puppyhood, I treated her dog. And I said, you know, we got her dog off of all meds, was an adult by then. Good. I'm like, okay, we good. And they said to me, I have to be able to run agility. And I said, but Fido doesn't want to run agility. Like, what Uh are we doing? And she said to me, Lisa, you don't understand. All my friends. Run agility. I go every weekend. I sit in my lawn chair. We sit with our crates. We talk all day. We have our campers. Like, this is my lifestyle. And I said, Can you get another dog? And she was Mm -hmm. like, I don't want another dog. Yeah. Yeah. I want this dog to run agility. So I said, If you want this dog to run agility, you're going to need this level of behavior modification. It's not Mm -hmm. your agility training. No, no. It's a trainer who has a high level of skill and cognitive therapies to help you to get your dog over his fear of sounds. It's always fear of sounds, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Big agility yeah. for open air in Florida. there are these big steel buildings, it's loud. Yeah. So, yes. um, so you're gonna have to do that and we will need medicine. In her case, she chose medicine for her dog. Mm-hmm. And I supported that because pets don't live in a vacuum. They live in homes with human beings. And it's the human-animal bond that that fuels the love. Huh. It's the human-animal bond that causes that person to stick with that pet when the on gets tough, when mm-hmm. they have cancer, when they're incontinent, all the things. So I want to put as much money in the human-animal bond piggy bank as I can. Yes. And it's those moments where that person runs agility with her dog cause them to bond and I can do it in a way that's low stress to the animal mm-hmm. and doesn't cause fear or stress. I'm completely fine with medicating, you know, within all of, th- of those parameters.
1: I love that. It almost brought me to tears because it made me think of, I had a situation I'm um, not too long, maybe a couple of years ago. And it was similar, but it was just that the dog was actually stressed in the home. The, the, the home had children and, um, and the dog outside the home, It was actually not stress, but inside the home stress. And I had this moral dilemma of like, do we talk about going and talking to the behaviorist and the, you know, our veterinarian about getting on medication to be able to live in that home where in another home, this dog would not have needed medication, but the human animal bond was so strong. The children loved the dog. The dog actually loved the children. It was just all the children things that were stressful, you know, like when that would happen Um, and the kids, the friends coming over and i actually had to sit and i had this ethical dilemma in my head of do we medicate or would rehoming and we chose medication and we chose keeping and it all worked out good but i had to sit down and and i did the same thing i said you know this human animal bond is so important so we rehome now we could are causing more stress to everyone because the dog has to learn a new home and even if that home didn't need medication Still going to be stressed because it's a moving and a change. The family's all distraught and broken and think that they failed the dog, even though they don't really fail the dog. It's just life. And then I started thinking, you know, I have a son, you know, with ADHD and I have a daughter with ADD and autism. Well, you know, they're on medications. If I had a, diff- if they were lived on a farm where my son was ADHD, where he was up every morning and had to, you know, do farm work all day, maybe he wouldn't need medication, but that's not the lifestyle we have. And yes, he does, you know, lots of sports and he does a lot of things. So we do as much as we can, but he needed that medication. And I had to come to that same conclusion of, it was really looking at the whole picture of, you know, happiness. Now, sometimes the dog's not a good fit in that house. For multiple reasons and the person can't give the time doesn't want the time wants the cookie cutter dog then we have to have the rehoming conversation of safety like i currently have clients whose dogs are fighting and they just don't want to be consistent you know they they keep having the visitors come without any management and that's what causes the fights and there's one family dog that keeps coming and i'm just said the management if the management can't happen and you know even with the medications if you can't do this for your dog then maybe it is better for this dog to be rehomed and those are always awful awful conversations to have but it was affecting a negative effect on that human animal bond in that house it was affecting the dogs you know everybody was miserable and um and the human was making the choice that they didn't have the time the means or whatever their reason was to not do the work. Um, And so that was a a hard conversation, but luckily I don't get that that often, but, you know, we have to look at all of those things. And I love that, you know, one thing I have noticed is since COVID um, doctors are more comfortable prescribing medication than they were before. Do you see that as well, that there's kind of a shift since covid do you mean primary care veterinarians or well, more primary care or I mean, veterinary behaviorists have, all, have always, always been now, yeah. now you guys are like overloaded. So now the yeah. general <laughs> vets are having to take over some of this interest because, yeah. you know, it takes a year to get in to see you as for some, not know, at all. Okay. Not, all right, you're so good. First of all, let's clear some things up. Let's yes, things this, up. Are, if you're There are many own. of us, there uh-huh. are
0: many of us that have several doctors. You can get in to see us in a week. You Perfect. can get in to see Dr. Christensen and Colorado NYC vets. I want to say the last time I talked to Elise, it was like two weeks. I don't want to speak okay. for her. Might have changed, right? Totally. But no, no, exactly. Dr. Pike does not have a year. No one has a year. So I yeah. want to, yeah. because then the reason I want to be real clear about that, I, I want to be this. real clear is yeah. because I'm sick and tired of hearing that bull I... said to me again and again, it's the excuse. I couldn't go to the vet behaviors to have a waiting list. No, no, yeah. dear. No, you can go see the vet behaviors to be a vet to vet telehealth. Yes. You can have that done within 48 hours. We turn ours around once we have the entire everything that needs to be submitted for a vet to vet. I turn it around in two days.
1: So I want to say I love issues.
0: that. I love
1: okay? that more people are doing that. Yes. I love it. And, yes.
0: And I don't have a wait list because, like Amy Pike, like Dr. Yeah. Pike and Dr. Lern, who mm-hmm. uh, Dr. Lawrence is in Virginia, Dr. Pike is. She is somewhere near DC. I always yeah. say she's in Virginia or in DC, but yeah, I think she's, she's right in DC. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. We have similar practice models where Perfect. we can get people in, like Chris, like Doctor Christensen. Yes, um, where we can get people in very quickly. So I, yeah. I don't want I, I don't want people to hear that again from this trusted source. Okay, I so there's that. Yes. Number two, yes. are veterinarians prescribing medicine more than they used to? No, I, I don't see that. My vets okay. that refer to me that email me from like, you know, I lecture all over the world. They email me or they DM me on Instagram, whatever. I think I get the same number I ever did of questions. um, And I'm not getting like more questions as if people are saying, hey, I have this dog. I also, I'll be another dissenter. I'll just be the dissenter on this podcast. I did not have this flurry of separation related disorder COVID dogs. What I saw during COVID in the midst of COVID were the most petrified dogs I had ever seen, mm-hmm. right? Okay. I saw petrified babies. Mm-hmm. And now those petrified babies are three. And now we non-scientifically are going back and saying, oh yes, you got your dog in 2020. It must be COVID. And I'm thinking, no, that dog would have been fearful if you had gotten him in 2019 mm-hmm. or 2024. That dog was born fearful. fearful. Yes. His DNA tells him, to be afraid. So I don't know. I think we have to be very careful adopted during COVID. In order for us to say COVID caused X, Y, Z, we have to compare it to before COVID. Mm-hmm. We have to say, okay, in the years between 2016 and 2019, how many fearful dogs were presented about behaviors? But even that is biased because yeah. in 2019, I had an old practice model where you had to wait five months to see me. Yes. So now I'm going to see a whole different subset of people. I'm going to see people then that had the time to wait. I'm going to see people now, whether they have the time to wait or not, because I see them more quickly because we change the way we see patients. So I don't, you know, the thing about COVID is in the midst of it, I did see a difference. I saw puppies that were absolutely terrified. But what I can't say as a scientist mm-hmm. is if COVID actually changed puppies, because my puppy trainers that I refer to never stopped having classes. Mm-hmm. They were distanced. Mm-hmm. Yes, they yep. were masked. But they didn't stop. People didn't stop taking their puppies out. They just stopped hugging people while they were socializing their puppies. So, you know, I think that I'm going to dissent on that. I'm going to wait. There are several studies looking at how COVID affected animals, right? Mm
1: -hmm. But I'm going to
0: wait for some pure science before I declare COVID this major thing. And I feel like one thing I'd like to see change is I'd like for veterinarians to stop with curbside. Some Mm -hmm. vets are still doing curbside. and, And I don't see a reason for that except to not have pet parents in the exam room. And I don't Mm -hmm. like that too much. But other than that, I don't have much to say about COVID.
1: I just love everything you just said. And so I just want to recap it so people can hear because I love what you said. So I am actually now, because in California, we have Davis, but it's far away. And we have some... Veterinary behaviors, But we have limited people who can see them in person without long travels. So that becomes a discouraging. And so there I and I have been starting to be able to say, hey, your vet can talk to these and and more and more behaviors are offering vet to vet consultations Oh, yeah, which is so much more helpful than when totally. before it did. Plus, we have a lot more behaviors now, you know, every year there's more, which is also awesome. Cause at one point there were only 50, you know, in the world. So it's like, of course you guys had a wait list because there weren't enough. So I love that there's more people doing vet to vet. And I have been talking a lot about that. So I love that we brought that up here because, um, I feel like I'm always saying this, but I feel like I'm having to educate vets, general vets, that this is a possibility, you know, because my client will go back to the vet and say, Shannon said, you can talk to who and they just assume it's the one vet that's local to us that does have an eight-month right. wait list because they don't have right. a, they the don't list. have
0: several doctors or they don't have a team like right. we do. And I know I should be I should be clear, there probably are other vet behaviors. Dr. Fagan in Colorado, I think, has a team plan as a team framework or structure like we do there are probably others you know i just know my peeps and the way they run (laughs) but but maybe we should say look if your pet's having a problem and your dog training professional your friend yourself your spouse someone says maybe we should get this dog checked out what do you do you go to your primary care vet first Mm -hmm. you ask for a full health screening cbc chemistry thyroid if your dog is over eight or if your dog is sick in any other way ask for a free t4 Not just Mm a T4, and then we're gonna get a urinalysis. That's a, and a fecal. I always do a fecal antigen, Mm
1: -hmm. always.
0: Mm -hmm. I don't wanna just do a float. So, Mm -hmm. you know, if you have the uh, discretionary income to do that, let's get that full baseline. Your veterinary may not even recommend it. That's okay. You can walk in there and say what you want and your vet Mm -hmm. will do it for you. Most vets will do it. So there's that. We want a good pain screening. I had a a dog come in yesterday. There was no way I could touch this dog. That was not happening without drugs. So what we did was I did not use drugs that day. What I did was we took him outside and and I got the technician to get me videos of the dog moving. So we can do pain screenings from watching dogs sit, lie down, trot up and back, right? So we can start to get the idea of what do I need to do with this dog to find pain? Then let's just say that you and your vet determine that you need a vet behaviorist. How do you do that? You ask them to do one of several things, refer you to a vet behaviorist in person. Let's say the vet behaviorist in person doesn't have a system where they can get you in soon. Let's just say it's going to be Whatever is not soon for you, because we're all gonna have a different threshold for weight, totally. right? Then, so let's just say you say to the vet, I am gonna make that appointment, but dude, three months, I can't, this is not doable for me. My pet is gonna bite my kid or whatever. So then you say to your vet, can you please call the vet behaviors? Now in California, you have the highest concentration of vet behaviors. So I get that you're a giant state, like you're really yeah. a country. But, yeah. But Pennsylvania, Jersey, California new york area you got a lot of vet behaviorists mm. and residents so ask you know sometimes vets will call me from like toronto yeah. and they have a vet behavior there but they know me right yeah so whatever can you call someone can you get me some help now your vet might be like yeah i can email or text i know some vet behaviors, so i can do that uh or your vet might say i don't know anybody or i don't feel comfortable like this is outside of my purview i don't even want to be a part of this so then you can ask for a vet to vet telehealth consult Almost every vet behaviors does this. So your vet's going to have one that they like. It mm-hmm. might be the person down the street. So for you, Dr. Malamit let's say, mm-hmm. right, somebody down the street, or it might be someone across the country. I don't know, mm-hmm. but they can get that done and that will get you help. A, tele, a vet to vet telehealth consult doesn't even come close to the care you get in person because the vet behaviors cannot talk to you in most states. I cannot even speak to the client. Matter of fact, if the client of a vet to vet telehealth consult, the pet parent calls into my practice. We tell them, call your vet. We can't tell you anything because it's not legal in Florida yes. for me to do that. Right. Okay. So, but I have helped so many pets with vet to vet consults because sometimes they need me, but they don't need a hundred percent of me. Yes. They just need Like 25. <laughs> exactly. And so if I can do that and the vet can just prescribe the meds uh, then, and also I, when I do my vet to vet, then I'm sure all of I'm sure everybody does it like me. We send out like, go to this website, take this course, read this book. So you get resources, not just, you know, not just
1: drugs. Right. I know. I think that that's, uh, that's why I wanted to highlight that because I think that's so important. And the curbside is killing me too. Like why? There's no reason that these animals, actually I have some people who have left some just general practices because they just weren't going curb, you know, and they said, I can't, I want to be there. I don't want to just keep dropping off my pet at the curbside. You know, I think that that is we don't need that anymore. And um, so I'm glad you brought that up because if that's still happening places, you know, it's it's disservice to everyone, you know, to do it that mm-hmm. way. And then those fearful puppies, I just also loved whether it was COVID or I mean, I always see I a small percentage in my puppy classes of some puppy that comes terrified at eight to 12 weeks, terrified. And, um, you know, that genetic piece is something I feel like people are finally starting to understand a little bit, like you've done, especially if I see them and they've done everything right. You know, they did socializing, there was no known trauma, you know, nothing that was scary and they're still terrified of, you know, and they've been like this, you know, that genetic piece is so big and people are still learning that, you know, and I think in COVID you saw it, I think also in COVID there was a piece of how much anxious people were. And I know there's more studies ah, out about yes. how our anxiety is affects our dogs. And um, I think that also affected these dogs, you know, if they, if the people, because I have a couple of clients who didn't like didn't leave their house at all. Like they had food oh, delivered. Yes. They, they bleached their food before it came in. They didn't talk to anybody. Maybe they zoom. And the depression that I saw in some of these people and the anxiety, you're living in that all day and you're a, a dog or a puppy and, and they get these puppies or these dogs to help them with their anxiety and their stress. But now you bring in this animal who's like, this is this kind of stressful house to live in because you're stressed. Um, I think there was a piece of that, which probably some of these studies will you know, really show. Because I did see that where the people who said, I'm still going on my walks. I'm still going to live my life. Yeah. I'm just not going to hug everybody. And I still, because I still held my puppy classes as soon as they let me, you know, in California, they were, we were a little stricter on things sometimes, but I still, as soon as they were open, I started my classes back and, and, and they were really full, you know, because everybody want the people who wanted to be out, wanted it. But then I still had people who you know, didn't want to leave their house and stuff. But I think there was a lot going on with COVID. Um, so I think it's just what COVID has done is brought up um openness to what stress anxiety looks like. So I think that may be partly why, um, you know, more dogs, I'm just seeing more. And that might be because in my town, I mean, I do training, but if they get to me, it's usually because the other trainers haven't been able to find something. And I'm kind of that bridge between the other trainers don't know that this dog even has emotional stress. So they come to me and then I'm like, your dog has emotional stress. And then depending on their vet, they either go to the behaviors. They go back to their vet who some of the, I'm fortunate to have some vets who they're not behaviorists, but they take a huge interest. So they've gone to courses and they follow Karen overall and they read the, you know, I mean, they do all the things. They go to lots of continuing education. So they'll do what they can do sometimes, or they'll do vet to vet. So I have made those connections. So that's great. But it is something I think COVID just made everybody a little more aware that I you know, isolation and stuff does affect us. So um, yeah. I think those were really great points. I could talk to you forever and ever about all this stuff because it's really interesting to me. And I really like to help people understand. One, I love that more vets are doing the vet to vet. So you're more available than The world wants to think, plus it took a little while to figure out a system because, you know, you've got to figure out how do I do this, um, you know, and be able to help as many pets, which all of us have to do in any business model. So Mm -hmm. I'm glad to hear that. I I want people to hear this. You can get into a vet. It may not be one-on-one. It may be vet-to-vet, but you do have access. You have access. So yes. Mm -hmm. And And medication is a good, safe possibility if your pet needs it. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, and it's looking at the welfare. I mean, really, the welfare of the pet is so important. And that's what we, our big goal is really if we have a, if we had to pick one thing, that's a major piece of what we want for our people and the pets that, you know, live with them. So, um, yeah,
0: yeah. I think that I'm, I'm, I, you and I use welfare, vet behaviors, lots of scientists, there's a, there's a college of welfare, but I try when I talk to pet parents. Because what does welfare mean? Because if they look at their dog, who's 10 pounds overweight and asleep on the thickest, you know, $200 cushy orthopedic bed, (laughs) they're like, my dog's got some good welfare. So what I say is more joy. Yes. Who doesn't want more joy? I am trying in my 50s to learn how to shift, you know, the paradigm to have the most joyful life I can have. Why wouldn't I want that for the most innocent in my life, which are the animals in my life. They never grow up. They never are malicious. They're sweet, innocent. Even the most aggressive dog is just trying to figure it out.
1: Right. Right? Yes.
0: So yes, more joy, less fear. Everybody wants that.
1: I think that's great. I mean, that is really what it is. And, and I think it is one of those things is I'm, you know, pushing 50 now too. So, you know, when we get, you get out of those stressful twenties and, you know, you learn about yourself in your thirties and then your forties, you start to go, wait a minute. And now I just wish it on. I wish that the world would know these things earlier and not have to wait a half a century. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Me too. It. So <laughs> I agree with that a hundred percent. So well, just to manage time, because I know you have a busy day and everybody, I'm sure everyone who's listening is just loving all what we're, what we're talking about because, uh, well, and I could talk about it all day. So, um, is there anything else you'd like to share? I mean, I love the joy part, but if there's anything else you'd like to share before we close today?
0: Um, well, I would just like everybody out there listening who has a cat or dog or a bunny or a lynx or a Amazon or whatever you have at your house, right. To sit down with a piece of paper And I like pencils, but you could use a pen if you wanted. And draw a line down the middle of the paper and put wants on one column and needs on the other column. And really be critical about what are your pet's needs and what are your wants. And that is a really big eye opener. That's your first step to understanding who you're living with and creating the most joyful Life is separating out your unrealistic expectations Mm -hmm. from your
1: animal's actual needs. Mm -hmm. It's your exercise for today. I love it. I love it. Love it. So, well, thank you so much for being with us today. And um, we'll be sharing all of this and your links so people know how to find you and all of your, you have very fun Instagram and Facebook (laughs) posts, and they're always fun to watch (laughs) and um, very educational helping the pets, you know, just live that joyful life. And if they have joy, you have joy. So it's a, it's a double win too. So thank you again so much for taking your time out with us today. And, um, and I will see you in June when we go to the conference. Okay. Of Are you speaking? Uh, I am speaking. I'm doing two. I think I'm doing
0: two okay. uh, lectures. So the we're talking about just So everyone out there knows the Practical Behavior Forum. So the American College of Veterinary Behaviorists has a meeting every year. The first day is scientific paper session. And then the second day is the Practical Behavior Forum. This is the first day for Practical Behavior Forum. We're offering dog trainer CEUs. I can't remember all the different ones that we got approval for, but you can email um, the college and we'll let you know. But, But for both days and the lectures are 20 minutes and it's me, Amy Pike, Megan Heron, Lise Christensen, Margaret Gruen, uh and Chris Pockle. I didn't yes, say Chris, Chris. Pockle. Yeah, so Chris. I got the dream team. It there. is.
1: I'm super excited. It is. I, got I already you. got my hotel. I've got it's I'm I'm going. I am all right. I, I am all registered. I as soon as <laughs> I as I was following it, and as soon as it opened, I was like, I can't register yet. I can't register yet. And then so I'm all I'll see you there. I'm looking really so forward to I love the two-day format. I'm really excited about that. So yeah, me too. Very me good. too. Well, thank you for being here. And I will see you in June if I don't talk to you before. And thank you all for listening. And hopefully you learned a little bit more about how to help your pet. So thank you guys so much.